what we are uh, about to see here basically is a, a fond farewell to John the Witness, John the Baptist. It's not the end of his life, but his, his ministry is very much changing. And what we're going to see is how his, his followers handled that and how he handled it as well. In Matthew 11 and 11, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Let's take a look at this passage, beginning with the 22nd verse. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has uh, the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you in these moments use your word to teach us, convict us, comfort us, nourish us, 
we want to know more of you, Lord. Will you cause that to happen? We ask for this not because we, we deserve it, but we ask it in Jesus' name, he who does deserve. Amen. So let's take a, let's take a look at the setting here. Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. And there, I think rightfully so, we, at least in my version, it's put in parenthesis which is kind of a little commentary of, uh, uh, that, that was uh, put in here by John. Now, most think uh, that he was in that area about six months. Uh, I know it's easy when you're reading through, and, and it's hard really to, to ever tell how long, so I you know, to a great degree, we, we need to rely on those commentators that figure out uh, uh, what's, been, what's going on in his ministry and, and that kind of a thing. Uh, some think he was there, say, from March until November, and he would have been preaching and baptizing, it says, uh, although according to chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his disciples did. Now, what we need to know about this baptism, though, is that, that uh, and this might explain some of the envy we, we see here or jealousy, is that this was, would be uh, essentially uh, the same baptism as John. It was not, as of yet, uh, Christian baptism. And the reason is because Christ hadn't accomplished what he came to do on the cross. So this was still a baptism looking forward to that coming to the kingdom, a baptism for repentance. And uh, we really don't see Christian baptism coming in until the day of Pentecost, which would be after Jesus died, was resurrected, walked the earth, and... and uh, then the Holy Spirit is poured out in, in a new way on that day of Pentecost. So look at the dis dispute we see here, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And I, I think we can understand uh, why that would be the case. Remember back to uh, the miracle where uh, he changed the, the, the water into wine. And in that home were these huge jars that held the water for purification. That was a big deal to them. So it would be natural when they see uh, this, this thing that was representing some kind of a cleansing, it would be natural for there to... Uh, to be a discussion about that and try to, try to figure out, well, just how does this fit with, uh, with the things that we have believed all along? Uh, 
And so, verse 26 then, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. See what's happening here? It's obvious there's, there's some envy here. Here we had uh, John and his disciples used to uh, the, the, the crowds following. And his disciples are saying, wait a minute, there's a new guy in town. And everybody seems to be going over to him. What's the deal? What are we going to do about this, basically? And so then we see John's perspective. And this is what I want us to especially focus on today. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So John is emphasizing uh, here that anything good, and he's telling his disciples this, look, anything good that is done or we have has come from above. That's the, that's the principle that, that we've, we've always got to, uh, to keep in mind. And even though the disciples wanted to give their leader, John, some glory, he's indicating, look, you give me glory and, and that's misplaced. It doesn't belong to me. Anything good that has happened in our ministry came from above. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. So here we see that, that John has evidently been consistent in his message. At no point did he say, follow me. At every point, apparently, because he's reminding his disciples, look, this is what I've said all along. I'm, I'm, not, the, I'm not the Christ. I'm here to witness about that coming Messiah. But I'm not him. So here's, here's what I, I want us to think of in terms of the first application, and that is uh, uh, an antidote to envy or jealousy is understanding our calling and giftedness and understanding that our calling and giftedness has come from God. And, and that's what we see here. That's what John had. He didn't need to envy Jesus because he understood that all along his whole calling was to point to Jesus. And so he was able to say, look, this is what God wanted me to do. I'm doing what God wanted me to do. And so Jesus is here, and so I can have joy because this is what I was put on this earth to do. And so in his case, 
it enabled him not to envy, not to be jealous, because he was thoroughly convinced that he was doing that which God had called him to do. He was where God wanted him to be, doing what God called him to do. Now, let me illustrate with the the picture that John puts forward. Uh, Verse 29, the one who has the bride uh, is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and uh, hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So, John the witness here is illustrating how he looks at uh, his calling to witness about Jesus rather than to be the Messiah, and he likens it to what we would probably call being the best man. Now, it's interesting, as I read to you earlier, Jesus has already said he's the best man. He's the best one that ever walked this earth. Now, he went on to say, but be the least in heaven. But Jesus saw his fulfillment of, what, of doing what God had called him to do. So Jesus is saying, uh, yeah, this is really the best man, but John puts it into perspective. He rejoices in being the friend. And that's really the role of the, uh, the, the best man. Uh, our wedding... Uh, Connie and I were married in the evening. It was 7 o'clock in the evening. And I, don't th- I, I, I think my best man was with me all day long. Now, in, what was his role? Well, part of his role was to make sure that uh, I didn't bolt and, and leave. <laughs> now, I just have to tell you, there was zero chance of that. So he had a, a pretty easy, easy job. But his role was to take care of me and, you know, see that, you know, I was hydrated and, you know, all the, all the things so that I was uh, uh, in shape when I got there. And, and one of the things that I actually had to call on him for was, uh, this was a long time ago, and we, we wore uh, black tuxedos. And, uh, and, and rented shoes. And my shoes didn't come in. And I didn't know it till the, the day of the wedding. And I didn't have a single pair of black shoes. So my best man's shoes had come in, but he had a pair of black shoes. And so he said, here, you can wear these. And just to, to uh, let you know what era this is, uh, they were platform shoes, okay? <laughs> Never worn before or after. <laughs> but I might appear a bit taller than I actually was in, a, in, in our pictures. So the best man, and, and that's what this is saying, the best man does whatever he can to attend to the groom. And that's what John did, but he did it with joy. You know, a, a good best man is not going to say, yeah, I'll do this stuff, I'll go through the motions, but 
should be me instead of him and so on. I'm not saying nobody's ever felt that way. But I'm saying a good best man is, is going to be thoroughly joyful for the one that he's attending. And that's what John did. And look at this next statement. He said, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Leon Morris, one commentator, calls that some of the greatest words ever to fall from the lips of mortal man. What a description. Arthur Pink said this, humility is not the product of direct cultivation, rather a byproduct. The more I try to be humble, the less I shall attain humility. But if I'm truly occupied with the one who was meek and lowly in heart, if I'm constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So here's what, he's, what, what Pink is saying here, that don't go around telling people, yeah, I'm working on getting more humble. He said, that's not how it works. In fact, if you've ever been around somebody that keeps telling you that, you know how irritating it can be. And it doesn't work. What Pink is saying is, the more I, I try to outwardly work, or cultivate it, the, the, the less that happens. So instead I find that the more I look on the Savior, the more I look on the one who was absolutely meek and humble of heart, the more I focus upon him, that's when humility comes as a byproduct. And so that's what we're called to do. Verse 31 then talks about the, the nature of that message. Now, before, before I even read it, here's the little mini controversy here, and that is who said this? Because we know that John the Baptist was, was talking. Uh, some think it was him. Some think that it was uh, Jesus speaking at this point, And they kind of didn't do a transition. They just kind of went back to quoting Jesus. And some think it, it's John the Evangelist, the one who wrote uh, the gospel. And you know what? I, I don't know which it was. And I'm not even going to go into the arguments because uh, even though they're interesting, but I don't know that it really matters. Whoever said this, this is God's word and it's truth. So we just need to figure out what was said. And if you want to do the study into who said it, uh, um, you, you're encouraged uh, to do that. Verse 31 he who comes from above is above all. There he's talking about Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So he's saying, he's characterizing everyone 
but Jesus as speaking in an earthly way. So Jesus, when he speaks, it's in an absolutely unique way with an authority that no one else has and everybody else is on a whole different plane when he speaks. And, and that includes John the witness. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, that doesn't mean literally no one has received Jesus' testimony, because we know that some had at that point. He had some disciples, and, and uh, John here had received his testimony. But, but the point is that there were few followers at that point. But it doesn't matter. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utter, utters the words of God for he gives the Spirit without measure. So that's, that's saying basically Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament. And Isaiah 11 verse 2 says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He he, Jesus, has every bit of the Holy Spirit. And then we see the message reiterated. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is not a fun topic. There are many in our day who will do all they can to avoid talking about the wrath of God. There are churches that will change the words of hymns and take out any reference to the wrath of God. And I will say, I can understand not wanting to speak of it because it is painful to think about what it means. And yet we would be remiss because it is so clear from the Word of God. So here's the thing in terms of understanding His wrath. His wrath is against sin and evil. A God who is not angry at sin and evil is reprehensible. A God who is not angry at sin and evil is without morals. And he is not worthy to be worshipped. And so, when he speaks of the wrath of God, it also teaches us of the great and deep love of God. It's because uh, of that wrath that we deserve that his love caused him to
to send his one and only son to die on the cross. John Owen says this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Get it? Worst thing you can do to the Father is is not to believe how much he loves you. So I want to give you two applications about the wrath of God as we approach this table. The first one is this. The wrath of God should give us incentive to tell others about Christ, to be a witness of the gospel to others. Those who refuse to believe the Bible on this point, on the point of the fact that that God has wrath towards sin and evil, those who, who think that everyone will be saved in the end have little or no incentive to share Christ with others. Why would they? It's all going to be okay in the end. And yet, God has seen fit to make us his ordinary method for the gospel to be spread. And so as we... As we uh, remember and consider his wrath, it should cause us to have more and more compassion for those who are under his wrath while they're without Christ. And then secondly, understanding the wrath of God should be a reminder of what he has done for us. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, this isn't in the verse, I'm, I'm inserting this, while we were still under the wrath of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love for us. Before Christ, We are condemned already. We saw that in last week's passage. If we trust in Christ alone, we are no longer condemned. And because of that, we are invited to this family table to remember, to rejoice, to recommit and to be strengthened in our faith as we're nourished by him.